The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. I want to start by asking you a question and asking you to just spend a minute or two trying to talk about this question with uh, the people that are around you. So I'm, I'm asking you to step out of your comfort zone just a little bit, but please, please try it out. Um, so fill in the blank for me. Love is... What is love? Love is blank. Take a moment, turn to the person beside you, and talk about it for a minute. Now, this is not an easy question to answer. It's stumped many people over generations. So I guess, did you have a hard time with it or was it clear? Right? Um, I think love is a little bit like the Roadrunner from Bugs Bunny and Tweety Show. Right? It is uh, strong, stronger than you'd expect sometimes. It is invisible most of the time because it runs so fast and really hard to nail down, right? Always gets away. Love is strong, but it's invisible, and it's really hard to nail down. Let me tell you a story. Um, In the year 2000, on May 4th, uh, over a few hours, thousands and thousands and thousands of people around the world received an email. Now think year 2000, email was pretty young, Um, And when they opened it, when these people opened it, they immediately wished that they hadn't. Because inside this email was a virus, a worm, actually. And when a person opened it, it caused a chain of events and damaged servers. 
It destroyed files. It caused IT managers everywhere to have to shut down email. It halted the economy. Everything stopped because this email. All over the world. And it actually caused, so think year 2000, it caused $8.75 million in damages. From the Department of Defense to Fortune 500 companies, everyone was, uh, was affected by it, and, but it only affected those who opened the email. But it was the most clever subject line, and it was bait. The subject read three words. Maybe you can guess what they are. I love you. I love you. Now, from the moment that we're born to the moment that we die, we as human beings long to hear these words. To hear these words from parents, from friends, from children, from grandchildren. We long to hear those words. Love is such a powerful force, but it's invisible. And it's almost impossible to nail down. And sitting here in these pews right now, I think we could also say that it has a power, right? I said it's powerful. It has a power to either make it or break it in our lives. I'm sure that each one of you can think of a person in your life where love and the desire to be loved has made it for them. They've got something that's different and it turns their life around. You can also think of people who have, have been destroyed by love, perhaps by a misguided love, a misdirected love. Love has the power to make it or break it in our lives, which is why it's so important for us to talk about. Last week, I started a new series of sermons called Being Church. And uh, this is coming out of our church's commitment to Church Renewal Lab, right? This, this two-year intentional journey of renewal. And so we're, we're centering ourselves on a- the Acts 2 Church for a few weeks. And we're talking about some of the foundations of, of this church. What made it different? What made it so distinct in that time? And so last week we talked about the first three words, right? They devoted themselves. They proskotoretoed themselves. That's the Greek, and it means to be filled with zeal and passion and energy and devotion. They were, they were all in on Jesus, all in on each other, and it showed, right, through how they lived their lives. And this week, we're looking at love, and it's not mentioned in this passage, but it's all over it. They had a different, the, the gospel of Jesus changed fundamentally changed how they saw love. And again, it just creates this domino effect. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. What was that, that understanding of love that changed everything for them? It, had the, it, it powerfully made it in their lives. I think if you ask the typical Hamiltonian, what is love? Um, we would respond with something similar to, love is attraction. To be attracted to something. And it comes out so, I think, naturally in our conversations. When you see somebody who's wearing a shirt that you like or an outfit that you like, you say, oh, I love that outfit on you. 
right? I love the way that outfit makes you look. What do you mean by that? You mean that you're attracted to it. You mean that you think it looks good, that you like it, right? Love is attraction. Or if you're talking to uh, your friends and you say to them something like, you know, Pascal Siakam, I love his all-around game. He can play off the board. He can, he can step back and drop the three, right? What are you saying? You're saying, I love his style of play. I'm attracted to his style of play, right? To love can so often be minimized to attraction. And it isn't all wrong, right? I think we're well aware that part of love is attraction, but we have minimized love to be all about attraction, and it's problematic. And here's why. What happens when the honeymoon phase runs out? What happens if that outfit doesn't look good on you? What happens if spicy pea stops draining threes? Right? What happens to love then? It disappears. If love is only attraction, then it's really fragile. And it's elusive. And it, and it leads to our lives being a lot like a roller coaster. We have ups and downs based on how other people think about us. Am I lovely? Am I, am I attractive as a person? Is my character attractive? Are my looks attractive? Is my career attractive? But in the early church, in Acts 2, they understood love in a different way. And probably the greatest place to go to see this is in John 13. In John 13, Jesus is coming to the end of his ministry, and he's preparing to eat the Last Supper with his disciples. And John, the gospel writer, describes Jesus before he sits down for the supper, and he says, quote, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So we can read everything that comes after it as loving to the end. I see a few of you opening up the Bible, your Bibles to John 13. That's not a bad idea because we'll be camped out here for a few minutes. John chapter 13 is, 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 is really central to understanding what Jesus, how Jesus talks about love. He loved them to the end. Who did he love to the end? Well, specifically in this case, he's talking about his disciples, Right? Um, the 12 of them that were closest to him, the 12 of them that were eating the last supper with him. But here's what the most fascinating part about this is. This was the 12. And who was one of the 12 that was sitting around that table? It was Judas Iscariot. It was Judas. And if you know anything about the story of the Bible, you know that Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus. He sold him out. He handed him over to be killed. Think about that. Jesus is sitting around. He's loving this person who has just handed him over to be killed. Imagine if you had a friend. You know, it hurts when our friends say things mean about us, doesn't it? When somebody says something that hurts, it hurts. Can you imagine if a friend didn't just say something that hurts you, that literally handed you over to be killed, that, that um, sold you out on false accusations? That would just, that would, that wouldn't just hurt. It'd be the worst pain that, you could, that, a, that a friend could do to you. And still, what does Jesus do? Knowing what Judas has done to him, he gets up and he washes their feet. Now, what's the big deal about that? Well, in those days, feet were uh, stinkier than they are today. 
They were more disgusting than they are today. They wore sandals and they walked around in streets that were not clean. There was urine. There was feces. There was just disgusting stuff on the street. And, um, and so that when they came in, they would have their feet washed. And Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. And it would be unthinkable for a Jewish rabbi to wash someone's feet. That is not the job. That's too low, too low. That's, it, would just, it would not be something that a Jewish rabbi would do. But interestingly enough, a Jewish slave, a servant, no way. Still too low for a Jewish servant to wash somebody's feet. It was that type of job. So Gentile servants, the lowest of the low, the afterthoughts, okay, fine. The Gentile servants, they are the ones to wash feet. Jesus loved his own to the very end. What does this mean? It means that Jesus, to Jesus, love is not purely an emotion. It's an action. It is a choice. Jesus intentionally chose, knowing what Jesus had done to him, to still treat him in a certain way. To get on his hands and knees and to wash his feet. And this teaches us so much about what Jesus thinks about love. It's, it, as I said, it's not an emotion. It's not just an emotion. It's a choice. But here's the thing, friends, is that we can't just isolate Judas here and act as if everyone else around the table with Jesus was perfect because that's not true. Jesus had a problem with each one of them. And if we read, read through the Gospels, we can see it, right? Thomas. He doubted Jesus. Peter was arrogant, proud, and a liar. Judas, as I said, betrayed Jesus. James and John wanted to be the first, wanted to be the best, wanted Jesus to recognize them as being at his left and his right. right? He wanted them to he, All of them at different points in the ministry, struggled with a serious lack of faith in Jesus. And, and think about it. These are the people who witnessed so many incredible miracles, and even then, there, there were problems with each one of them. And what does this mean for us? Well, this, this is good news, because I know that if, if we're honest with ourselves, that we know that God has a problem with us too. Imagine if your iPhone in your pocket was taking a recording of your whole life. Everything that you said, everything that you did, everything that you looked at, everything that you heard, everything was recorded. And then that was going to be played back before God. How would that make you feel? How comfortable would you be standing in front of the face of God and having these things played back? Now, if you're like me, um, there's certain places in your life that are going to the front of your mind right now. Yeah, God has a problem with us. But when we look at Jesus and the way that he loved his disciples, this is good news for us because he loved the people who knew that they were the least, who knew that they had a problem, who knew that they needed a savior. Jesus, he said at one point in his ministry, he wasn't sent to save the people who weren't sick. He was, he was sent to save the people who knew that they were sick and needed a Savior, who knew they needed someone to fix them. 
And so love for a Christian is primarily an action, a choice. And we can continue to see this thread played out and see that the greatest act of love that Jesus did was when he was hanging on the cross, right? He went to the cross. John 13, he loved them to the very end. What is the very end? The very end is the cross. When Jesus was on the cross and everyone deserted him, when he looked up to his Father in heaven and he wasn't hurt, he wasn't consoled, he was left alone, he was there because he was taking our place. He was solving the problem. He was giving himself for us. And in the greatest act of love in the history of the world, Jesus stayed there. He chose to stay there. He chose to allow himself the agony, the pain. And he died. And Tim Keller puts it so well. He says that he died not because we were lovely. There's nothing attractive to Jesus in us, but to make us lovely. To make us lovely. That's why he died. And so that's what love is. Love is a choice by Jesus to love us so that we can become more lovely. So that we can become more attractive each and every single day. And that is the foundation on which the early church built their identities. They, Jesus died for them to make them lovely. Not because they were lovely. Now we're entering into this church renewal lab, as I said, and it's an intentional two-year journey of renewal. And I'm, I'm going to ask the question, to what end? You know, as council has, has discerned this and said, yes, we're going to go for this. We need this. Why? Why do we need this? Is it because council looks out and says, you know what, we need more butts in the pews. We want to see this place filled. Obviously we do. But is that the motivation? No. That's not. Is it because we want to have more vibrant programs? It's all about programs, having the best programs in the city. And people come to us because we've got programs. Programs are great, but that's not why. Is it because, you know, we, um, we want to have more uplifting worship services on Sunday morning? We want everything to run hunky-dory. It's perfect. Everything. No, that's, those are, that's great, but that's not the motivation. What's the motivation? The motivation is that we has to be that we may become more lovely. Each one of us become more, more of a lovely follower of Jesus. That's why Jesus came. To love us so that we can become more lovely. Now, how does that happen? If we look at Acts 2, we can see the domino effect start to come, right? They committed themselves to certain things. What are those things? They received teaching. They devoted themselves to teaching. Why is this an exp- is, is it, why does this make us more lovely? Well, J.C. Ryle, who's a, a, a theologian, he says, to hear unscriptural teaching 52 Sundays in every year is a serious thing. It's a continual drop of slow poison into the mind. A drop of slow poison. Teaching, gospel teaching, is the antidote that we need in the world. It's how we learn to be more like Jesus. It's not all of it, but it's a part of it. So church, hold me accountable to that. As pastor of this congregation, I have been instructed to teach you every Sunday. That's my heart's desire. 
I am a minister of the word. And if I am not doing that, I'm not living into my calling in this church. Encourage me in this. Give critical feedback in this so that we can receive godly teaching, gospel-centered teaching on a weekly basis. What else did they do? They devoted themselves to prayer. Now, how does prayer make us more lovely? Well, prayer is not, you know, we, we talked about this last year when we did the Lord's Prayer series. Prayer is not primarily about creating a list of things and then bringing that list before God and demanding that he answer it. Right? That's, that's the opposite of kingdom prayer. Kingdom prayer is about God's kingdom coming into us. And that's where prayer has its most potential. When we invite God to come into us through prayer, we invite his spirit to make changes in our lives, to make us different. How do you pray? Do you pray like that? Your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. Each of us, if we, if we care about renewal, if we want to be transformed, like what our mission and vision says, our, we're here to be transformed by the gospel, then we must pray inside out. We must allow the Spirit to work in us. They devoted themselves to prayer. They also lived with each other and ate with each other regularly. They were involved in each other's lives. And I'm not going to dive into these because we're running out of time, but each of these things that the early church did was an expression of the love that God had for them. They did it because Jesus loved them, and they were changed by that. Because Jesus stayed on the cross for them, and they were changed by that. And you know what's amazing is that through this, the church exploded. Through the work of the Spirit, through this people, the church exploded. In the early Roman Empire, many historians write about this. It was like a boulder rolling down the hill. You just couldn't stop it. And we read it here in Acts 2, where it says that they enjoyed the favor of all people. And Tertullian, who's an, an early church father, he, he said that in the blink of an eye, the Roman Empire was transformed. Pagan culture was drawn to the church. And this is what he observed. And we, we asked the question, why? Was it because they ran the right programs? Was it because they had uplifting services? Was, the, was it because the, the preaching was lit? Was it because of any? No. What does Tertullian says? He says, see how they love. See how they love. We want to see Hamilton transformed by the gospel. What, what are people going to say about our church? When we, when we meet people in our neighborhood, what are they going to say about us? Our hope and our prayer, more and more, is that the response of our neighbors and our community is to say, first Hamilton, see how they love. Through the Cap Debt Center, See how they love. Through programs and ministries, see how they love. Through our deacons, see how they love. Through our worship, see how they love. Through everything, see how they love. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you so much that you loved us to the end. That you committed yourself to us, not because we were so lovely 
or perfect, but to make us lovely. Thank you for this grace that sets us free. You know, we can come to church knowing that the first words that we're going to hear from you are love, grace, mercy, and peace. Now give us your Holy Spirit so that we as a community can become more and more lovely as we follow you. Give us the devotion that we need. Stir up our hearts in the right ways that we may commit ourselves to good teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, to gospel evangelism. That the world, that the city, that our neighbors may say about this church, see how they love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.